0: Right? And a vision is something that's going to give you, give your organization a direction, something to latch onto, to allow you to get to the why. You know, why should I bother disrupting my cycle of events and, and why should I bother changing what I do? And that's, I can't emphasize the importance of urgency and vision because it is hard
1: cultural work. Welcome to the Inspire podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. My guest today on the Inspire podcast is Garth Nichols. And Garth is the Vice Principal of Student Engagement and Experiential Development at Havergal, uh, which is an all-girls independent school in Toronto. And he and they must be doing something right. You know, they've been around for 124 years. They'll be celebrating their 125th year anniversary next year. Uh, And in addition to this role, which uh, I'm going to ask Garth to tell us a bit more about, Garth is the co-founder of Cohort 21, which is a leadership development program for teachers. And for the work that he's done there and the work that he's doing to change how people teach and to adapt to how students learn, I thought he'd be the perfect person to have on to the Inspire podcast. So, Garth, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Bart. I'm looking forward to it.
1: It's great to have you here. And um you think about teaching as something that, you know, my wife's a teacher, uh, you know, teaching is, we've all gone through teaching. You think, how is the world of learning for students changing? And what does that mean for how teachers need to change how they uh, educate? And I know that's a that's a topic that you're deeply passionate about. So, you know, maybe give us the quick, uh, quick story of, um, you know, how you've come to be passionate about uh, helping teaching evolve?
0: Sure. Um, you know, I think it starts with the the wording because teacher implies and carries with it a cultural understanding that uh, the teacher is the person in front of the room who carries the knowledge and then subsequently will disperse that knowledge to their students. And what I like to do is I actually, I like to refer to those who are in schools, working in schools as educators. Because it carries with it a different concept. Education, can, there's so many things that, that come around. it There's leadership education, there's character education, there's curriculum education. So I like to speak about um, teachers now as educators because it does reflect the shift in their role uh, in, the, in the classroom, but also in the lives of their students. And so I I came to this. Um, I knew I'd wanted to be a teacher since I was sort of knee high to a grasshopper. I've always I've always been attracted to um, working with others um, for a long for a long time. And it wasn't until about five or six years into my teaching career that I realized that there that I was. Uh, Experiencing a tension, almost like cognitive dissonance, you know, where my beliefs were not meeting my actions. And that causes tension in the brain. It causes, um, you know, emotions in the body. And what I've been sort of dedicating my life to over the last 15 to 20 years is really understanding and getting behind and digging deep into education where it sits today in this massively shifting landscape, this quickly shifting landscape, too.
1: Was there a moment where it hit you, oh my gosh, you know, this is not, I'm not living and educating the way my values and my purpose say I should be?
0: Mm -hmm. It was a slow dawn (laughs) for me because I did have the honor and privilege of working at a school that uh, allowed me to uh, immediately in my career explore different ideas and and I created a course that rely that was basically a travel education course, and I created it with a with a colleague of mine, David Ingram, and he and I took students out of classes, and we only ran the course basically um, over, or the concept was to run these courses outside of cl- the class time and over you know our long extended breaks from school, and we taught Canadian history by going to Ottawa, by going to um, Europe as well, and. And they allowed me to embrace that for all of its you know, challenges and opportunities. But then I moved to another school and I started to teach a different course, different courses and one of which was, was a course called Law. It's offered at um, all schools, grade 12 Ontario curriculum. And um, I was teaching out in British Columbia and I had requested that our students don't write a final exam, but rather do a mock trial. And the school said no. And I accepted that. But when I asked why, they they said we don't do it that way. Exams are a better uh, are a better measure of how students have learned the material, and that's when it that's when I really started to feel that tension about what is the purpose of of their time in the classroom, the students' time in the classroom, and indeed what's the purpose of the educator's time in the classroom as well. And so to carry on, like I've come to this conclusion that today education is a wonderful, wonderful proposition. And all of its intents are really positive and, and, and good. But primarily it's out of touch with the lived experience of our world. And you can look at education, you can uh, look at it from an objective third party or even like an alien point of view and, and wonder and ask these questions. When else in our world, in our culture, do we put children together based on age? When else do we put children together and say, now everyone is gonna learn this at the same time. Because when little kids learn to eat, learn to tie their shoes, learn to speak, and there are months and months of of different and and years too of of, of age ranges when those skills get taken up, and so then in grade two and three we sit them all in the same classroom and say now you're going to learn to read, and if you can't learn to read now, then you're not you're going to be taken out of this class, you're going to be taken out of your peers, and you'll be put somewhere else, so. Those are the types of questions I really started to ask around the lived experience um, of it. and and basically, for me, it came down to this that the that when public school education, education as we know it today, when it became public and widespread, it was in a time that is no longer relevant. It was in a time of industrial age, and and we've heard you've probably heard this over and over again. And it was a very linear, Um, it was a very linear world but the world that that we are moving into and I'm not saying we're there yet but the world that we're moving into is far more creative and it's and it's what I refer to as exponential so we've got an industrial system that's living in a a more and more uh, creative world. We've got a linear system that is more and more working in an exponential world or an interconnected world. And so now education itself and educators are experiencing this cognitive dissonance. Like we know we're not serving our our students as well as we could. We know we're no longer able to, to guarantee things that we used to do. And so we as educators have two responses to that. Right? One is to say, no, let's just keep doing this, head in the sand. Let's just keep doing what we do until someone tells us otherwise. But then there are others out there. There are schools out there um, you know, in Toronto, in Ontario, in Canada, and across the, North America and in, in Europe too that, that are really shifting that language and saying, if schools are truly about learning, then they're no longer about teaching. If schools are truly about learning, then they're no longer about evaluation. They're about growth. And so that's where I see this big change.
1: And is that what you set out to lead? I mean, when you, as you said, you, you reached this epiphany over time through a series of experiences. Was that, did that become your purpose then to change uh, teaching to education, to change from this rote industrial process to one that reflects the realities of our world? Was that your vision?
0: Uh, yeah I think so and I, I don't think I could have articulated it um you know fifteen years ago, but over the work that I've been doing I've been able to test it and get you know get feedback good and bad on the work on the work that we're doing I've been able to been able to spread that a little bit further too through my work with cohort twenty one and, and introducing these concepts to other teachers but mm-hmm. you know when I talk about taking to heart this idea of learning as opposed to teaching it's it's hard work it's it's uncomfortable um but I feel that it's it's more valuable for our students in the way that we move forward. And so this is this is really the place where I live at this point,
1: yeah. Um what well, I'm so inspired by by what you've done is that you've led change in an industry, in a sector that is very you know, at least uh, stereotypically resistant to it, you know, entrenched and dogmatic in, in terms of how things are done, just the way you experienced when you had this teacher or this administrator who said, no, that's just how, that's not how we do it. and We do tests. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear about how you led change. And so maybe the first question I'll ask you is, how did you start? And, you know, maybe it's, is it with founding of Cohort 21? Like How, how did you go about, so you reached this epiphany, what happened next?
0: I think where it really started for me was, um, you know, with my own professional development, I wanted to go and try and seek out other educators who were asking these questions. And it was very hard to find. And when I did find them, it was in a conference where I was getting spoken to or like spoken at, not engaged with. And the most valuable conversations at those conferences were happening between workshops and between sessions. And I thought, that's what we need to capture, right? We need to capture those, yeah, but, or yes, and, or I want to hang on to that idea. But inevitably what happens is that you go back to the classroom, you go back to this and I'll talk about this later, but you go back to this cycle of education and it's, it's really hard to disrupt. It's really hard to actually do something different because the school year is so predictable and re- and recyclable that when challenges come, you're like, oh, I'm just going to leave those, I'm going to leave those other innovations and I'm just going to do what I do. Um, so yeah, so really that's, that's where it kind of started. And, uh, when I asked this question of my good friend and colleague, uh, Justin Medved, who's the co-founder of Core 21, along with me, we said, well, if there's, not a, if there's not a seat at the table, let's just go make a new table. And we started this thing called Core 21. And, we, and I remember sitting there in, in the library of this school on a Saturday morning w- asking him, who the heck is going to come to this? <laughs> you know? And it started with 12 uh, 12 teachers from the CIS Ontario, that's the Conference of Independent Schools of Ontario. And now we're, up to, we're in our seventh year, and we, cap it, we have to cap it now at uh, just under 50 participants per year. It's grown exponentially. And the biggest difference here is that we've actually left behind uh, a really popular, um, a really popular framework called Action Research. And we left that behind because at the end of Action Research, you present on your findings. And, and my big piece here, and this is important for everything going forward in this conversation, Bart, is that in Core 21, we call the last session the end of the beginning. We started to shift their mindset. We started to shift their approaches. We started to ask them to embrace ambiguity. We started to ask them to, to look outside of their classroom. And we've given them a structure in which to do that, that breaks the cycle. We've given them a cohort. That's why we call it Cohort 21. We've given the cohort of people who are there to support, who are, who are struggling doing the same things, who are experiencing the same emotions of change and that discomfort. And so that's, that's where my journey started. And as that has taken off, um, I've moved to a new school, Havergal College, and I'm in the position of vice principal of student engagement and experiential development. And that's a, that's a really interesting role. It's a really interesting title. First of all, it's a mouthful. And second of all, <laughs> it's, got, it's got some really significant big words in there, right? So I deal with student engagement and experiential development. A student is anyone who's pursuing a body of knowledge. And engagement means you have an emotional connection to something, experiential or to experience something as you go through it and to develop means to make better to create or to um, to understand better and so when you put that all in one place my job is is amazing because I take a student's interests and passions I develop experiences that allow them to pursue explore dig deeper into them in order to become more knowledgeable about who they are about who they are in the world and the, and their own interests and passions
1: and so, Garth, have you brought is- at Havergal? Sorry to interrupt you here. But so, have you brought and did they hire you because I know you, Cohort 21 was rolling. You'd done it for a number of years already before you joined. Did they see this vision that you had and that had become brought to life through Cohort 21 and say, we want that in Havergal? Was that why and you, they chose you? I like to think
0: so. Um, what they saw in, I, th- I think what they saw in me, Bart, is the ability to actually bring some of the elements, these, these um, newer elements of their strategic plan to life to make a couple of these shifts in that, in this, you know, larger concept of teaching to education from teaching to learning. um, They saw a potential for me to actually enact that change.
1: Hmm. And so when you got there, you know, and you had some of these ideas formed and they had some interest in them, how did you go about leading change? Because I think, you know, there's real applicability for, people whatever industry they might be in whether it's a corporate world government or even just in their community to learn from what you've been able to do how do you go about leading change
0: yeah it's a great question um and yeah so so first and foremost above anything else it's uh you have you're stepping into a culture it's a it's a culture of 123 years it's a culture that has um stakeholders from all around the world it's got uh Current parents, past parents, future parents, Scott, uh, current students, past students, future students, like all of these um, people who have invested in for, you know, what I would call a brand, right? I'm going to put my daughter into this school. I'm going to pay a quarter of a million dollars over five years. And I'm going to put my daughter in this school because it's a great brand and I believe in it. And so then, here comes Garth Nichols to actually start to make some changes.
1: And so, um, and just erase to was, all that 124 n- years no, of history. No,
0: no, 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 no. And this is important because <laughs> yeah, education no, works. I can
1: see that exactly. Yeah, people would say, yeah. you know, because uh, you know that what you stepped into is what a lot of people step into in business. Right? They come to a team. they're you know, are higher. Uh, they have consultant ideas. You know, they say we're going to restructure, and the organization just rejects it completely. And because for all the reasons you said, you know, long history, pride, and things work. So how did you deal with that?
0: So f- first and foremost, um, you know, as you, as you gain that culture, you, you, you gain shared language, you gain an understanding and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. in my role to make change, I had to create urgency. I had to, I had to actually, I had to make a case, pitch an idea that was, that was so compelling to break the cycle of repeatable event, events, mm-hmm. moments, emotions. Like, Bart, you remember when you were at school and you had what was going on in your life in, in high school. It was tests. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were dances. Maybe you were involved in, in sports, so there mm-hmm. were competitions. Maybe you were involved in theaters, so there were performances, mm-hmm. maybe music and performances. There were class times. Maybe you had a guest speaker at an assembly, which is really exciting. But then the year ends and it's exams.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the only thing that gets reported on in that year are your marks, right? That's right? And so so when you come across um, uh, a strategic plan or you are given a mission of change, then you have to see what you assess and what you value because those two are, this, are the same thing. And so I had to build an urgency around this idea of experiential development, around this idea of student voice and choice and, and, and interaction that was different. So I had to break that. And in, to, to do that, you have to create a really compelling vision Right, and a vision is something that's going to give you, give your organization a direction, something to latch onto, to allow you to get to the why. You know, why should I bother disrupting my cycle of events, and and why should I bother changing what I do? And that's I can't emphasize the importance of urgency and vision because it is hard cultural work. You have to appeal to emotions. Mm-hmm. You have to keep students at the center. You have to provide a vision people can get behind, because. When you are changing something, people are emotionally invested in the past, in the way that they do things, and they are unsure and and most likely uncomfortable with a, with an uncharted future.
1: Well, and what's really and fascinating so, to me, just listening to you describe this vision, you know, on the one hand, I would say, oh, we came in with a vision, you know, because you had cohort twenty one, you had already had this vision for from teaching and education. But what I'm hearing is that you you had a real appreciation and respect for the history, for the stakeholders, for their involvement and that you crafted a vision to create urgency that reflected the differences and unique strengths of the school. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we are, in a, we are a business. We're in a highly competitive business. Um, and so what we had to do was, what I had to do in creating that urgency and vision was really talk about the, some unpleasant things that, that there are other independent schools that are doing things better than us.
1: Hmm. How do people so, react to that? Not well,
0: you know. What did they say? Um, well, how do, you, like, how do you know that? How, how, do you, how can you prove that? We've got that. How do you know that we, are, are, we aren't doing it better? You know, and, and I draw upon my, my extensive experience with independent schools across our, our province, but also across our country. And I say, listen, we are not as great as we think we are. And so we need to stake our claim. We need to say, this is where we want to play, Right. Um, so yes, yeah, so we had to do all of that work. And I think one of the first things I did on top of that urgency and vision was I gave them a concrete example and initiative that said, this is what it looks like, sounds like, and feels like. Can,
1: Can you share that with, the, with me right now?
0: Sh- yeah, sh- sure. Um, what I, what I created and it's nothing earth shattering, but it's a cult- but in a culture of academic excellence, what I created was, um, a symposium, and so uh, it's a new timetable. So there's a, I've got a new structure that I've introduced. And it disrupts the, the regular flow of a classroom day. And it requires students to make a choice of whether or not to attend their second period class or to attend this symposium. And it's giving students the choice. And teachers were unsure about that. And well, they're missing my class. And if they're missing my class, they're not learning. So I tried to develop the symposium in conjunction or uh, in collaboration with teachers, and we had an author come in and speak about, um, speak about the Dorito effect. His name is Mark Schatzker. He's a, it's a fantastic book, but it makes us think differently about the way that we understand food in our lives. So I connected it to business. I connected it to uh, some of our clubs and co-curriculars as well. And I said, See? We can do this.
1: And did they come? Did the the students choose to go?
0: Yeah, we had about 75 students show up, which is a great number of students um, for something that's brand new. And the nicest part about that part was about um, a month later, we had a guest speaker come to our, we have a morning assembly three days a week. And this guest speaker was from, uh, she was from Medicine Sans Frontier. And she was speaking to our students about the significance of uh, her work and all those things, and afterwards, I had a group of a group of students come up to me and say, "Mr. Nichols, that's totally a symposium next time." I'm like, <laughs> so they they okay. were on it. There's like the it's a lexicon. It's part of our lexicon now, right? So those types of things, getting into that cultural language, I think is really important.
1: Yeah. So did that did that get you some early support? I mean, did you start to have almost a coalition of the willing?
0: Yeah, yeah, we did. And that's what what I call it, the coalition of willing. I mean, there are those who understand, there are those who who will automatically understand and get behind your vision because you've sold it and because they believe in it too. And they're like, oh, you've articulated my own tension. You've articulated my my own discomfort in what I do. And so what I did then was to create opportunities to invite them in for the next initiative, create opportunities for them to... um, to invest in it with their time because in schools time is literally money right Right. Um, so invest their time so I was able to uh, to grab these people and engage them in what I think really good learning organizations do and that is embracing ambiguity right empathizing with others who may not be in the room you know considering alternate stakeholders you know all those types of things i think it give it gave them a put them in a position of of creativity, thinking about new things that may never... If we do that, oh, then we might be able to do that. What's possible? And teachers don't rarely... Teachers rarely get the opportunity to do that outside of their classroom. Teachers are usually innovative, creative thinkers, flexible thinkers in their classroom. But when it comes to the larger organization, um, I welcomed them in and, and I wanted their ideas because they are the culture in a lot of ways. And so I created a... I created a, a working group to help me out with, with growing the symposium from uh, from what it was to what it now is. And so to support that process, we use design thinking protocols. Um, and in those design thinking protocols, you know, some challenges came up. Challenges that you hear in the halls or that people say, hey, listen, I, I was talking to a teacher and they said this will never work because so of this. So
1: challenges from people that you had some, yeah, yeah. some people who were almost... Uh, overtly or covertly speaking out against you, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And what, and you were so, trying, what you and your colleague, your coalition, was now trying to do,
0: yeah. And so, what I mean, and this is just the nature of who I am, but I think it is a really important part of making change is that you embrace those voices and you welcome them in as well. Once you have a good vision uh, and a good framework from the coalition of the willing, then you say, okay, let's let's interrogate this, let's tear this apart because. This is not our tradition. This is not our history. And so we need those lenses on it. So, and again. So,
1: so how did you do that? I'm curious because, you know, I think uh, uh, when I, you know, I've been in this business 17 years, I've seen a lot of change initiatives fail. And often, you know, what you describe is kind of the stop point where there'll be a vision, there'll be a strategy, they'll form a group of people who, quote unquote, get it. And then the, organi- the rest of the organization is either neutral or sinks its heels in and it stops and grinds to a halt. And those people are often demonized. Well, they don't get it. They're not progressive thinkers. They don't buy in. And it, but regardless of the finger pointing, it falls apart. So how do you, as you say, bring in these objectors?
0: It's a, it's a really important point. You articulated that as a stop point um, really well there. And what I did was I created some constraints to their voice. I said, this is going to go, right? But we're not in a rush. This is going to happen, but I don't want to waste our time. This is going to be a success. Maybe not a 100% success right away, but you can help us do this. You are valuable because you have that institutional knowledge. You have the, you have the ability to see what I can't, right? You're like my blind spot um, indicator on, on all those new cars. And so I, wel- I, I think it has to do with just being really welcoming to those voices and saying that you are a part of change and a really but important part But also saying of it's
1: going forward, you know, and, and you can contribute, but let's be clear, this is happening.
0: Yeah. And, and, and again, it's, it's not happening in the way that I want it to. It's happening in the way that the culture is going to take this up. So there has to be a little bit of flexibility because otherwise you're just coming from the top down and you're instituting a change and saying, if you don't like it, the door's over there. And that's not how cultures change. And even though I've said it a couple of times in this interview, that schools are businesses, they behave very much like a village as opposed to a business. There's so many human interactions, human, um, uh, like it's just a human organization that it is cultural. So. Success with a top-down initiative rarely works in schools. Um, so you have to you have to be able to take that take that um, dissenting voice and take that up and integrate it.
1: And you have to be able to slow down. Okay, so you built this coalition. You brought in the objectors. You started to get some traction. Then what?
0: Um, well, then what we well then what we need to do is really like protect that innovation, protect that group. And I don't mean shelter them. I mean, protect them in the systems and structures that you're developing. There's a, there's a phrase called, uh, following the breadcrumbs, right? And what we need to do when we create real meaningful change in a school is we need to get rid of those breadcrumbs because as soon as there's doubt, as soon as there's, uh, as soon as there's uh, questions that can't be answered, as soon as there's an opportunity, you're going to have the coalition of the unwilling just follow, <laughs> those, follow the breadcrumbs right. home to what, what used to happen. And that's the death knell for innovation. You know, what you have to do is protect innovation by saying, the way that we did things is no longer the way that we're doing things. The way that we do things now is our new direction. And we're going to go so, slow.
1: So communication sounds like a, an integral part of how you protect what you've created. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's a huge part of, in a school like this, I named all the the stakeholders earlier, but, you know, as soon as you have that innovation take hold, you have to celebrate the small wins, right? You have to really get out there and you have to say, thank you. This couldn't have happened without you. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. Um, I do something really, really simple um, (laughs) because I, I do this often. And when a big, you know, when, it, when, it, when something happens at the school that I think is, is an enough to say that's a cultural change, that's one of those little tiny steps that we've taken, then I'll do what's co- I'll give out what's called a Havergal High Five. It's about the size of an index card. It's in our, ha- it's in our school colors. It's got our school crest on it. And it's just a checkbox of a whole bunch of different things. And I can just check them off. And I don't check off all the boxes ever. Um, sometimes I do, but rarely. But one of the, it just says, you know, Havergal College, high five. It's, it's to you know, Bart, it's from Garth. And the checkboxes are like, you inspired me and others. You did some great teaching or sorry, you did some great learning today. You put on a great show for the community. You helped me out. You showed creative confidence. You practice mindfulness. You brought your, uh, you put yourself in the shoes of your students. You use technology in an innovative way. You impressed our students. You impressed our te- our parents. You rocked it. You know they made someone laugh, like all of these things. And so to get these, um, to be able to give these out is just a. It's a symbol of my gratitude. It's a symbol that they have. They are a part of something bigger than themselves in their classroom. And what's nice is, um, you know, I see them pinned up on bu- the teachers' bulletin boards in their offices or or whatever. So there's there is some level of meaning that they attach to mm-hmm. it, right?
1: So Did those are also- those. Did you also go out uh, and communicate the changes to all those stakeholder groups? Like, did you tell parents, for example, hey, I we're did. changing the way your kids are going to learn?
0: Yeah, yeah, I did several times, actually. Um, if, if I can, Bart, I think it would help me at this point help your listeners. Um, if I walk through like my big, like a sort of um, the iconic change that I brought to Havergal, so this is called. These are called day nines, and they're called day nines because we have an eight-day rotating timetable, and day nine is is a non-academic day that's inserted into the timetable four times per year. So I've changed the structure of the school, and I've said instead of taking your kids out of class, we're canceling class, and we're learning. Hmm. That's a that's a that is that's a significant a, that's
1: statement. A, that's a contentious, <laughs> so, exciting, and contentious statement is. all at once. But huh? what I
0: have. But what I have behind me is our strategic plan, you know, which says we need to expand our campus to encompass the world. And so I've taken that on. It's also come out of uh, the idea was there were some early formations of it out of strat plan groups, um, committees who were made up of teachers. So I already know that there are teachers in favor of this. And I'd already tried it out as a symposium. And so now with my understanding of the culture, I can go in and start to disrupt that that cyclical nature of school and say, no, we're going to literally disrupt the timetable four times a week, or four, sorry, four times a year. And so I pulled together a working group of teachers and a working group of students, ran through design thinking protocols, and I arrived at a, at a curated uh, vision statement, right? I took all of those together and I, and I created a vision statement and I put it out there. And I said, tear this apart. What are your worst fears, Right. Trying to trying to get those uh, trying to get the feedback and yeah and then I and I chose people specifically and I said hey can you give me, give me ten minutes of your time because this is what I'm thinking and I need your help so then I did a whole school presentation presented it to uh, to all of the st- of the faculty to get their um, to get their buy in and I just kept going back to the why this is why we're doing this this is our strategic value that we're offering our uh, against all of our other competition this is it. And so what I did too and I don't know if your listeners will appreciate this but then I took <laughs> then I put out an invitation I said I'm going to I'm going to host you at the Aga Khan Museum because that is a place of culture, creativity, art and thinking. That will get us in the right mindset to develop this even further. And I'm going to buy you lunch. At the mm. Aga Khan Museum. And this is what you're going to have for lunch. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I just gave them the menu. And it's going to be good. <laughs> and, I got, and I got about 35 teachers, you know, out of uh, of about 70 to come. So I got about just, you know, That's I got funny. about half. And we spent the day and we workshopped, you know, what are ideas? What can we do? Yes, yes, yes. No. Why no? Okay, okay. Now it's yes. And so, that, so, so then we launched them. And uh, after each one, I did a little bit of a of a survey. Is it meeting its mission? What should we stop? What should we start? What should, what we, what should we continue? I broadcast this to the parents, uh, let them know know about it. That's a and that's a place that I improved on over the year because I don't think I did it well in the in the first one. And then I celebrated after that, and I gave out some high fives, Bart. But I also um, created a candy bar in our staff lounge with a huge sign that said, thank you very much. And I did that with the help of, of some of the people who I had around me um, for day nines. But that was a huge celebration. We got the first one off the ground, hurrah. Now let's tear it apart and rebuild it for the next time. And so we went through that. And you know, I brought this up, um, I bring up this example because you asked me about communication. And the parents, some parents were having a hard time conceptualizing this because they didn't know where the breadcrumbs were going. I wasn't taught like that. Why are you bringing my daughter out of class? Or, Garth, I love this idea, but tell me why it's improving my daughter's education. So what I did, is I enlisted our, we have a wonderful communications department here at the school. And so we, we created a video. So in our second day nine, once it was launched, uh, we brought more um, teachers in to, to involve them in the curricular connections and things like that. But we sent out a camera crew You know, on-campus, we go all over Toronto and they grabbed some footage and we created a video that we then shipped out to parents that this is the value of day nine. Look what your daughters are doing. Look at the positions that they're in to to be courageous. Look at the lines of inquiry and curiosity they're showing as they, you know, they go to Hyde Park and explore seasons in grade three. Um, And then, and look at the compassion as they go and they they help our community partnerships, you know, um, new circles, recent immigrants, uh, newcomers kitchen, And so we're so we're deepening our values of our the values of our school. And then we did the you know we did the third, and then we did the fourth. And so now I'm in the you know we finished our first year, so we have a bit of a celebration at the end of the year. And now it's back to focus groups. It's back to me going to the department heads and saying what did we learn. Going back to the um, guidance departments, uh, the head of guidance, and saying you know how can we leverage this more next year. And so that's how I'm protecting this. Your coalition
1: has expanded.
0: Well, and that's yeah. what you do. You bring them in and you have yeah. dissenters who are there and you're like, I need you to keep that those eyes on it. I need you to be a dissenter mm-hmm. all the time.
1: But no, I, I really like it.
0: it. The, I, I don't care if you like it now. You need to keep, need to keep right. me on my toes, right?
1: <laughs> I love it. I and love so, that you, you bring them into it and you make them part of the solution and really embrace their objections as valuable.
0: Yeah, and I think you know it's important at, at this stage for me around protecting this initiative, it's important for your listeners too to understand that we need to be very aware of when budgets are due. We need to be very aware when hiring is happening and we need to be persistent in advocating for this because there it's you know I have a, I did one thing really well, Bart. I got the I got a great group of people around me to do this work. But it's me who is is who has to be the persistent voice and saying, Where are they on the calendar? Can we move them here? Can we move them there? How am I going to set that up? So there is a lot of adv- advocacy, like there is with a dissenting voice, like this is going to happen. You know, Now you're saying that to the whole institution, saying, this is going to happen, but I'm willing to listen to how it should happen for
1: you. Well, it's a, so, it's a great story. I mean, and I think that day nine just sums up everything. I mean, just what, here's what I'm taking away from from your story, aside from the fact that you're, you're changing, you know, teaching to education in ways that are meaningful. I think if I had daughters, you know, I have two sons, if I had daughters, I'd be thinking about when can I register them at Havergal? Yeah.
0: Oh, <laughs> so, that's uh, nice. I've got two sons as well.
1: Yeah. We're, we're both out of <laughs> luck barring something. Um, <laughs> but you know what, here's what I'm taking. You know, first is find your seat at the table or set up your own table. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, you know, second, once you get to the table, really Listen to the group, listen to the stakeholders, and with that knowledge, craft a vision. and And third, forge you know this coalition of the willing, and bring in the objectors, and then you know fifth or fourth, uh, protect what you've got, and do so through communication. That it strikes me that that that's really what I'm taking away. Is there anything you'd add to that? Uh, lessons that you've drawn from your experience on how you lead change. Yeah,
0: I think the. Only- the only thing about um, no that you've summed that up really well, I think the only thing I would add is that when you're talking about about protection again it's a this is pay attention to the culture, pay attention to how people are taking up your new lexicon of you know I have to pay attention to how people are taking up day nine as a word that comes out of their mouth mm-hmm. you know are they taking as the what's the tone um, so you have to always go back to the why, link it back to the culture, and then for me it's linking it back to my strategy and the strategy of the whole school. Right.
1: Right, and that gives everyone something to be part of together. So, well Garth, this is this is I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I mean, you and I have known each other for many years and I always had some inkling of the the cool stuff you were doing, but to have you just lay it out And to hear the passion and to just hear the amount of work that goes into the communication part. I mean, thats it didn't just happen because you had a great idea. It's the advocacy that you are continually engaged in that clearly has led to success here. So kudos to you. Well,
0: Bart, you know, I I think also your listeners should know that uh, you are integral in this because you and I had a conversation before I was at Havergal and I had read your book and, you're, and you do talk a lot about the significance and the, the importance of language. You know? mm-hmm. So I owe this uh, uh, in small part to cool. you, sir. So thank you very I'm much for having be back on.
1: A real pleasure. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you and learn about what you're doing at Havergal or learn about Cohort 21, where should they go? What should they do?
0: Uh, best place to go is cohort21.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. And my handle is think underscore teach.
1: Thanks for uh, for the conversation, Garth. (laughs) All right, take care. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Garth Nichols. Garth is just such a passionate leader, and uh, willing his willingness to challenge the status quo around education is just bringing about some amazing change in uh, the field of teaching Uh, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation because it's the last one the last episode of 2018 it's been an absolute pleasure doing this podcast and I will be back in January on the 7th with our first episode of 2019 and then we'll be going weekly until the end of May when we'll do a brief break for season one so have a great holiday uh enjoy some time off and we'll talk to you in 2019 thanks